listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome to I Might Be Wrong. You are listening to myself, Rich, and I have got Henry with me. How are you, Henry? Hello, Rich. Yes, I am well, as usual. It's uh, <laughs> starting to feel springy out there, which is cool. So It is. I've been out and about. How about you? Yes, it's nice to get some actual enjoyable weather for a while. It'd be nice if we get a little bit more sun um, over the next few weeks. It'd make me happy. So, yes, I would like that. Yeah, Sunshine does that. So, um, yeah, we have a band, or you have a band for us. Mm-hmm. Who have you got? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously you did one of the biggest bands in the world last week. And so rather than trying to compete on that front, I decided to go with a band who are just a lovely band that I really appreciate and hold a special place in my heart. Uh, so I have gone with Turin Breaks and The Optimist LP. Oh, what a what a wonderful little album. They hold a special place in my heart too, which we'll probably come on to for, for, for both of us. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of that album in particular give us a bit of a background into who Turin Breaks are because um, I guess they're probably reasonably well known in the UK at least I don't think they've really gone worldwide but yeah give us a bit of a a background on them yeah I think that's fair they have popped up on various soundtracks for various TV programs and things like that so there's definitely an element of them being sort of known but not necessarily like you say they're, they're probably biggest here in the UK as much as anywhere else so they are an english band and they are mostly a duo of ollie knights and gail perijanian perijanian i don't know how to say that so i'm going to say gail a lot in this podcast (laughs) well well given our um some of the pronunciation we've had on uh other bands and artists uh maybe gail is the right way to go on this one i found out we did have a massive faux pas which is that it's sigur rose not Cigarettes. Yeah, well, someone <laughs> didn't someone post that on? Um, yeah, was I it think we got Facebook? commented at. Which, which is a, a great shout. Although, in in our defence, whenever they're they're brought up on the radio or mm-hmm. anywhere, or even though I've, I've seen them introduced on a live set, and and the introduction has been cigarettes. Yep. And the band hasn't stepped up and said stop it. So, a little bit of defence on our sides. There do seem to be some elements of the band trying to stop it, but I I get the impression that it was mispronounced so often that they've just gone screw it well we'll whatever either either is fine yeah so turin breaks do have two other long-term collaborators so rob allum and eddie meyer are part of the band when they're playing live they're involved in recording but they're they don't tend to be as involved in the creative process which is mostly ollie knight's getting the ball rolling and then bringing gail in to do some work on it but it's very much an Ollie Knight's driven project, generally. Yeah. And when you talk about the kind of the project, what's their sound like? Yeah, so they, they've they evolved over the years, but at their core, it's very much this sort of dual acoustic guitars and harmonies. And they're very folksy and a bit whimsical, but they have this kind of dark edge and energy to some of their music as well. Yeah, certainly in the album that you've picked yes which in my view is their best one it's the best combination of little edginess with a folksiness and the two meet really really well yeah absolutely okay so one thing i should point out is that the optimist lp is two decades old this month 
And no. I'd love to claim that it's no coincidence that we're doing it because of that, but it's absolutely a coincidence and I hadn't even <laughs> considered that until I did the research. Is it really that old? Yeah. How did you, when did you come across it? So how I got into Turing Breaks in the first place is I didn't actually come across the album. What happened was I was in between school and university. I worked for a year and during that year I came down to Bristol to visit a friend who was here to go and watch Doves play live. It was my first ever proper gig i'd been to a festival the previous summer but this was the first proper proper gig for me and so when i turned up i met my friend mark who i think you've met and his then girlfriend and headed to go to the gig it was at the anson room so bristol's university union has has a a gig venue and shelly who has a much cooler upbringing than i had had been to lots of gigs over the years. And so when we got there, her attitude was, oh, we don't need to see the support. Support acts are always rubbish. It's pointless. Let's just stand in the bar and drink for, mm-hmm. you know, an hour and a half before Doves come on. I was like, no, this is my first <laughs> ever gig. And I absolutely want to go and see, I want to experience everything. I want to go in early. I want to see the support, all of that kind of stuff. So we go in and we stand, you know, it's not a big crowd. No one's really heard of, whoever the support is you know the first track gets played and and I was like yeah I kind of like these guys they sound pretty good and then second and third and as Shelly leans across is like yeah you know what they are pretty good like the surprise Mm. of actually because you and I've been to a lot of live gigs and the support act generally is not always bad but often forgettable yeah and I think partly because the, the sound setups for the main band so sometimes you see the support acts oh, coming on and, yes. and, and the sound's terrible and so because the sound's not so good people start talking through it and then you end up with this just the crowd's gone the sound's bad and it's a struggle particularly at the Anson rooms they seemed at least when we were at university to always have an issue with just not setting up support acts to sound anywhere near decent the main act were always great the supports were always not not good but it's these two guys up there with acoustic guitars and it's Turing Breaks. I, I loved them. I really enjoyed the set. And then over the following two or three months, they started popping up on XFM from time to time because they were building up to releasing this album. And so when this album came out, I actually just went out and bought it the week of release and loved it and, and have always loved it. It's an album that I have just dug back into time and time again. And it's it's just a Really wonderful, very enjoyable, very easy listening album, I guess, to an extent. And again, I'd say easy listening and people will think that's an insult, but it's really not. Yeah, my experience is similar to yours in that, well, at the same time, I think I probably heard a single first and then decided to buy the album off the back of that. But yeah, I'd come back from backpacking, about to go to uni, Mm -hmm. and I must have just bought it on a whim, really, or on the back of a single. And same as you kind of fell in love with it and when I got to university put all my stuff down and in, in my room and shut the door this was the first CD I, I pulled out and I've it kind of christened the room with with this album nice it's a bit weird it, it, it's quite it's quite thoughtful the album you can kind of I don't know it gives a really lovely sense of calm I think and mm-hmm. when all of the stress of moving out of home and bringing boxes into a room and now you kind of you want to make it your own 
I had pressed play on this album and, and it was this kind of cathartic little thing that um, that I just knew well and thought, yeah, this is a, a nice way to start a, a term. Uh, that's nice. That's lovely. Yeah, I I think that even though we've talked about that slightly darker edge, ultimately it's called the Optimist LP and it is quite an optimistic sounding album. At least the first couple of tracks certainly are. We should talk a little bit about Turin Breaks and their background and and what their influences are so they actually met at school knights had not been doing very well at a school that he was going to and had been moved to a new school and gail had had the exact same thing happen to him the year before so he was the new kid and gail welcomed him in as oh yeah we can we can be friends oh cool and they were only about eight at the time and they both just loved guitars and they thought guitars were the coolest thing so they decided that they would get into uh into playing music and so that that was the thing throughout their friendship and they used to live around the corner from each other in Ballam in London they would just go round after school and jam together and record them on these crappy four tracks and and just do stuff and I think that's that's a genesis of bands where you do get that musicality once they're at the point of releasing albums because they've just had years and years and years of playing together already and making all the mistakes and sounding fucking terrible. And it's quite cool the way that they've stuck with this kind of dual guitar approach because a lot of people would have gone, all right, you're the guitarist, so one of of us needs to play bass. We need to find a drummer. And you end up building a band or a kind of four piece. And I know they do, they're effectively a four or a five piece now. But in terms of the way the music's composed, it's two guitars playing off each other. At least that's how it sounds like on a lot of their albums. And that is quite different to, to a lot of other artists. Yeah. And they've got a lot of obviously guitar band influences. So they talk about things like Prince, Talk Talk, Chuck Berry, The Black Crows. Uh, and one which I really like is as I think maybe being a sneaky big influence, particularly on this album, is uh, Sebado. Because On Fire, to me, by Sebado, absolutely sounds like something they could have been listening to in the middle of making this. True. There's a band you don't hear much of anymore. <laughs> True. I only know Sebado because of Scrubs. Because On Fire was on one of the early seasons of that. And obviously I'm a massive Scrubs fan. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Sebado had quite a massive cult following like properly cult like super niche i think several yeah. fans are like they stick together i'm pretty sure i've um found that out before but yeah and those influences do come through i like the chuck berry one that, yeah that, that surprised me a little bit but it's but yeah chuck berry's a legend so yeah chuck berry's one that we need to talk to someone who knows chuck berry better than i do at some point because i think a lot of people who like music but aren't necessarily into it in the geeky way that we are wouldn't necessarily know the roots of rock and roll beyond oh the Beatles and the Stones and actually Chuck Berry was that previous part of the lineage that all of those people listened to and loved and sort of borrowed stole whatever you want to put it all of their ideas from him or a lot of those ideas yeah. about, about music from him that is a great shout and actually obviously I mean the, the, the famous crossover into pop culture is um Back to the Future. Absolutely. When he's up on the stage and, you know, I guess your kids weren't ready for this yet or your parents. 
something along those lines, but he plays yeah. a Chuck Berry solo and, um, <laughs> and blows her room away. But um, we're digressing, but it's kind of an influential part of, I guess, their lives. And um, yeah, that's, that's a fair shout. But this album isn't particularly Chuck Berry-ish for no, me. No, it's not, no. I've always thought of them as this folk rock acoustic guitar duo, but actually it's kind of unfair. There's a lot more complexity in their music. So you've got Laird strings and guitars and ukulele. I mean, Future Boy is a great example of the complexity in their music. Yeah, I totally agree with that. They're not clever. They're not trying to do something weird and wacky, like, I guess, you know, uh, the, the Radioheads and, uh, and so on. Yeah. They're not doing Kid A. They're never going to no, do a Kid but, A. But at the same time, you can tell that they're not just your straight-down-the-line, pop-by-numbers band. Right. And their lyrics are odd, which I think is part of the appeal and moves them beyond just being a standard folksy band. I was interested in this, so I did a bit of digging, and Ollie Knight said in one of the interviews that I read, when I'm writing lyrics, I always imagine that I'm like an old TV set. I put up my aerial, pick up on something in the air, and channel it through into the pen. I wish I could say it was more conscious than that, but really it's almost like remote writing the way I'm doing it. I don't give myself a hard time about making too much sense. And that that kind of shines through, because there are some lyrics that are very specific and pointed and very evocative and other things that are very obscure and weird and what on earth are you talking about there? But he does it in a really nice way, in a way that your brain kind of almost just goes with it. (laughs) It's like, because there's there's room for you to interpret some of the lyrics or, or not, or just listen to the sounds. But it doesn't, great, like some lyricists write bad lyrics and it's annoying. <laughs> it's like, stop yeah, yeah. doing that. But they don't write annoying lyrics, even if some of it's a little bit obscure, I guess. And Knight seems to do most of the songwriting. So he will generally start with ideas of lyrics or riffs or whatever. And he'll take it to Gale. And it, there's a great quote from him of Gale is brilliant at harmony, not vocally so much as a harmony of ideas and accompaniment. He'll be very good at taking what I've done and putting layers on arrangement. I think he's done a good job of making me sound like a better songwriter than I really am. And that's lovely. What a great way to have a creative partnership where you've got someone who's this kind of idea sparky guy and then someone who can take those ideas and really flesh them out and do wonderful things with them. Yeah, and you mentioned arrangement and I think that's what makes The Optimist in particular such a great album. Yeah. And and I don't think it really comes across in the later ones to such an extent. I think just in The Optimist, they've just nailed it. I I would agree with you to a certain extent, but I think we should talk about some of their albums because I think they're a bit up and down, but there are a couple that I really love. But we should start with The Optimist because that's what we're here to do. How much do you love the opening three notes of Feeling Oblivion? Oh, that's such a great way to start the album. It's almost like a trick a hypnotist would use when he makes you focus just by something very simple. And it's these three piano keys, piano notes, before anything else kicks in and they're on their own. It's a lovely, lovely start. Yeah, I think it's great. And and then everything else kind of floods in after it. But I love that that opening piece. 
and then the lyrics are kind of intriguing to me because they sort of swing between whimsical and menacing. So you've got Cub Scouts are screaming, needing ice creaming and all the pleasures of June. I'm in a parked car, flowers seem friendly and people in hallways fill walls as sort of this kind of evoking drunk house parties and all this kind of summery imagery, which is wonderful. And then you get into this chorus of... By the time fear takes me over, we'll still be rolling and feeling oblivion. Once in a while, the lie and the laughter can burn through a hole in my ears, and this kind of paranoia almost that's that's sitting in there under the under the surface. I've just read the following line. It says, "Like a man with glasses catching a sunbeam and burning the skin of a kid." <laughs> right. <laughs> the first half of that is beautiful, and then it's like, "Now nah, I'm going to just nail that kid." <laughs> Do you think it's deliberate? I always assume that that was like a, a an accidentally. He's just standing in a way that means uh, that the kid's just in in the firing line. By but that, I guess that's the point. It's kind of it is this slightly weird. Um, it is a slightly weird style. Even musically, about three minutes into the track, there's the there's there's a string section that kicks in, and it's sort of unnerving and almost something you might hear in a horror movie funny isn't it it's it's an odd sound i don't know where that's come from i can't understand where that would be influenced from and i love it yeah (laughs) it works really well and it it just creates this this sound that isn't totally safe but you want to hear more yeah and it still resolves into a positivity there's the last feeling oblivion sort of resolves into a more comfortable ah, release out of the back of the the track. Yeah, I do like the way it starts. And then it kind of drops into Underdog, or Save mm-hmm. Me, which is the next track. And then you've got this straight drum beat that kicks in and it's kind of, all right, th- this is back on more poppy ground now. And it's got a bit more tempo and you've gone from this kind of lilting, gentle song to something a bit more focused and I, I love the way it, it moves into underdog i think it's one of the best songs on the album I, I agree but i also think that while the music is a bit poppier and a bit lighter there's a bit more of that aggressive edge to his vocal delivery which i don't think you're expecting when you listen to the music and things in the lyrics things like i tried to stay friendly for the sugary abuse And then you go into the chorus and it all of a sudden jumps into this major key, but the lyrics are then save me from myself. Yeah. (laughs) So it's always this juxtaposition of positivity with a bit of unnerving, ah, what's going on? I love the way, and and, you know, I could relate to this back at university, like you said you'd always fall for the underdog. And it's this kind Mm. of accusation that it was like, all right, if I carry (laughs) on being the underdog, then you'll fall in love with me, but, but you won't because I'm I'm the underdog still. And it's, uh, I I think it's a lovely little song. Yeah, and Knight says of it, it was a perfect scenario of how you'd think a Turin Breaks song might come into existence. It was literally just me and Gail sitting in his bedroom when we were 19 years old and he was jamming out these chords we all know as underdog and I was sort of rapping over the top of the melody, just kind of throwing out ideas and, and lyrics. And once we'd pinned something down, we recorded a nice little demo of it on our mini disc four track that we had at the time. No way! <laughs> but apparently it was originally called Sally and was more of a love song about a girl and then their manager said that he loved the feel of it but didn't love the lyrics and Knights agreed and rewrote all the lyrics in about 20 minutes Interesting. literally the week they were going to the studio and it was all off the cuff and really instinctive 
he makes this comment of it's funny when you look back in hindsight and think imagine if I'd written it differently again what would have happened because he could easily have done it the next day when he was in a different mindset and a different mood yeah it's it's a bit like the uh chat we had about feeder with Buck Rogers and how he wrote a load of bollocks and that's still (laughs) what's in the uh in the lyrics yeah I want to jump to state of things yes Great song. I I don't know why, but to me, the opening acoustic guitar sounds like the start of exit music for a film by Radiohead, but faster and more hopeful. And the, the chord progression takes a more positive track than exit music, but those opening, the first few chords that they use sound very similar. Mm, it's a very Gomez-y like track, this one. It kind of That's shuffles along like a Gomez track. And it's got a little bit more kind of bit more energy than than some of the others i do like the way this album kind of mixes between the slower tracks and the the slightly more upbeat ones it it, it seems to be a very well constructed album yeah i Front agree back, it's kind of it's like they've actually really thought of the order of the tracks yeah this track is so good the chorus in here of you and me used to be on fire it's a very simple lyrical emotion that has been used many many times and yet it doesn't feel cliched here it feels very raw it feels like there's that real emotional drive for for that chorus that i just love yeah and it's coming not just out of his voice but out of the the music and out of the instruments as well it all just works really well together and the bass line is bloody wonderful yeah agree this is not the only time that we hear echoes of Radiohead, and it's not a surprise because there'd be an influence on any band that was recording at the time, but there's electric guitars in Slack that sort of sound a bit like something that might be on Planet Telex or the Benz. Yeah, absolutely. That is almost a, a Radiohead introduction that they're using there at the start of Slack. Um, I don't think it's one of their strongest songs, but you can definitely hear that. I mean, that's kind of pinched, isn't it? It's got to be from, from the Benz. <laughs> Somewhere in the Benz. But again, yeah. I, I agree with you. Slack's not necessarily one of their standout tracks, but it's a great upbeat track to move things on in the album. And it's sat between By TV Light and Starship. And Starship's another one with really weird on-edge strings going on. Yeah, I guess that's back to the point about composition. Some of the songs aren't that strong. I would have said Starship and By TV Light are kind of all right, but they do make it work with the way the album plays out. So you can just play this through and it doesn't feel like it's filler. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So I want to go over the last three. Well, not the last three, almost the last three. Okay. The Road, Mind of Money, The Optimist. I think they're the three best songs or the three kind of... It's the highlight of the album to me. Really? Yeah, I love the end of it. I love The Road. I love the way it it goes back into the... It's almost back to the start in the way that you get this kind of slightly... I don't know. He's not too happy in The Road and it sounds a little bit on edge. And then Mind Over Money, I think, is one of the best songs they've ever written. Okay. I mean, I like it a lot. I wouldn't have called it out necessarily, but it does have... The, the chorus is wonderful, let's face it. Yeah, I think that's one of their best tracks. I, I, I love it. And then The Optimist chills the whole album out. So I actually, mm-hmm. whenever I was listening to this album, I would happily listen through just because I knew those tracks were there. And it's like, yeah. I kind of want to keep listening because I know they're there and they're, they'll make me happy. So 
yeah, it, I, I think the album finishes really strongly and it comes in at, in at just under 50 minutes. So it's it's not totally bulbous. It's quite a <laughs> kind of straightforward album. Yeah, true. And then there's there's a hidden track because this was released in 2001. So you had to have a hidden track. But I always think of that as being part of The Optimist and I just love the way it sort of, it's quite just a pretty instrumental to finish things off. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it does well. So... What a great little album! Absolutely. Mo- moving on, because I I I ended up buying the next couple of albums actually. Before we do, mm-hmm. without looking, how many albums do you think they have without the live albums? So I know there's Ether Song. I know there's Jack in a the Box. Then that's it. I, I don't know many others. How many have they got? Eight albums. What? So I know. F- <laughs> yeah, I kind that of was my reaction. After Jack in a Box they would have something else out because they would have done. But eight, bloody yeah. hell, where yeah. do they go? What what happened to them? Are they any good? Yeah, so there's some of the later stuff that I want to talk about once we get there that I, I really genuinely liked. So let's jump into Ether Song. What did you think of Ether Song? Disappointment, big disappointment. <laughs> I bought it. I love Long Distance. I like Painkiller. <sighs> It's over an hour long. It's 15 songs. It's too long. It's got too much filler in. There's some brilliant stuff in there, but they need to take a hedge cutter to that. Just cut out all sorts of... It, it just felt like it was a classic record company going, get an album out and do more and, and do more stuff. And they've produced way less. So it's interesting that you point to the record label because this is the point where there starts to be quite a lot of tension between them and the label because... Oh, really? Yeah, I think the label were pushing them to be this commercially viable, easy listening Radio 1, Radio 2 type band and they didn't oh. necessarily want to be that. So that's that's why I want to come on to some of the later albums because when they drop from that deal to a new deal with a different label, things change. Okay, I didn't know any of this because I just assumed they were just, that this is what they did. Okay. I'm with you. Painkiller's really, really great. That summer rain dripping down your face again, summer rain praying someone feels the same chorus is just a classic. And I think most music fans will have heard this at some point. It got a lot of radio play back in the day and I think it was probably on a bunch of TV shows and things. The track that I want to call out is Panic Attack, which I really like. It's all twitchy paranoia, all the better for it. It's like looking over your shoulder at something you can't quite pin down or spot. And I, I think it's a brilliant I think it's a brilliant track, but I agree with you. Most of the rest of the album sounds like a couple of guys playing acoustic guitars in a nice, pretty way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of nailed it. All right, Jack in a Box. For me, Jack in a Box and Dark on Fire didn't really listen to them at all. So what are your thoughts on them? Did you listen to them at all? So I, I actually bought Jack in a Box because I was like, I'm going to, I hope they can recover, <laughs> I right. guess. Uh, it's all it's all nice. There are some really nice songs on there again. But I don't know. It just, I think it's one of their better, it's their second best album. Of, of the one I've heard but then I've only heard three so maybe <laughs> is that damning with faint praise I bought it because I wanted another Optimist mm-hmm. LP and, and it wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> so I was like god damn it I think they released They Can't Buy the Sunshine as a, it was one of their singles and it's okay 
Fishing for a Dream, actually, is the one song which I do like. And it kind of, it starts with this little acoustic introduction and then it all just kind of kicks in. I, I think that's probably their, their best song on the album. Yeah, it's one that I do know a bit, but not well. I assume, again, heard it on the radio or something. Uh, they Can't Buy Sunshine, for me, sounds a bit Jack Johnson-ish. And again, I feel like there was all of that Jack Johnson and all of all of those types that were breaking through at that kind of point in time and almost feel like, again, they're being pushed in that direction by the record label. Yeah. So at what point then did they did they change? Because th- that's the point where I just stopped listening to them. So Dark on Fire is the last of their albums on Source as a label. Mm-hmm. There was another one which is uh, just a live sessions type thing. I think there's maybe two live albums. Um, and again, I had a brief listen when I was doing the research and nothing nothing really grabbed me, but I didn't stick it on and have a few listens through or anything like that where i picked them back up having not really paid all that much attention for a while is outbursts and the start of that album there's a track called sea change which is absolutely wonderful yeah so outbursts was the first album that they released on cooking vinyl so cooking vinyl is a label that's from what I read, more of an artist service-based thing. So they do all of the recording and distribution, but the artist retains ownership of their copyrights, which is obviously quite different to how most of the music industry works. And so this, to me, probably is where I think that there's got back to a bit more of the Optimist LP sound because they're like, oh, we've got the freedom to do what we want again, and this is what we want to do. And I love this album there's so much good stuff on here that totally reminds me of the optimist oh i'm i'm sorry i'm listening to it right now i know this where is it from this is lovely <laughs> yeah it's great I, and isn't I know it? it's during breaks but i didn't know it's really lovely it got a lot of radio play i think on like six music and stuff oh wait doesn't this have an interesting video no idea yes ah that's it okay <laughs> so yeah, this does have an interesting video. I remember it because they released it and it's all this stop motion animation. Okay. And I remember I must have seen it on some kind of proto Reddit board on on the internet back then. And I saw the video and I listened to the song and I thought, this is a really lovely song. And I think I completely forgot about it. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you brought it up because this is really good because this is like, it's almost like this is from from The Optimist, and it's like they nailed it with this, and I haven't heard anything else from the album, so um, <laughs> that's my evening source. You need to go and listen to it, because there's so much good stuff on here, and and Sea Changes is a wonderful way to open the album, and it's got that kind of gorgeous, folksy sound that is that kind of classic Turin Breaks first album sound. Mirror is also wonderful, so the, the second track has this beautiful opening guitar and then it's back into this slightly off kilter side of their music oh, uh cool. the, the rise into the chorus on this is classic turn breaks oh wow okay well i'm um in one ear i have you and in the other ear i have this sea change song which i kind of lost um you know when this happens sometimes <laughs> you hear a song and you like it and then it just disappears into yeah into nowhere and you'd stumble across it again and you've literally right on this podcast just brought it back into my head so um thank you very much for that that's cool you're welcome well this album was 2010 which i couldn't believe because i thought 
I'd heard all this stuff like three or four years ago, but it turns out it's it's a decade old already. Wow. Apocalypse is another good one from here that's worth checking out, partly because it's spelt A-P-O-C-O-L-I-P-S, as in lips on your face. Uh, and who doesn't love a good pun, but also there's great dueling acoustic guitars in here. Awesome. Wow. Which is just, it's just wonderful. It's a really great track. So I, having loved that album... Their next release in 2013 is called We Were Here. And my notes say, were we? Because I completely missed this. <laughs> but the album cover is fucking beautiful. The artwork on this is wonderful. It's cool, isn't it? Which I really love. Uh, and then Lost Property is another one that I'd picked up and listened to quite a bit. 96 was played on the radio a lot. And that's a really, really lovely track. The opening in particular is great. And again, it sort of showcases how Turin Breaks love to open an album. Like, it's it's they, they always grab you with something. Yeah. Wow. Okay, this is another one that's just passed me by. And um, I, I think probably off the back of my... I guess I felt like a little bit like I'd squandered my pocket money a, a bit on Ether Song and Jack <laughs> yeah. in the Box that I, I've just missed this and I've made a bit of a mistake. It's, it's a really cool album. And I read something that I obviously didn't take any notes on, but the actual album art cover, they saw it in a gallery that a friend had uh, invited them to a gallery opening or something. And they were like, that looks like the album cover. That's our album cover that someone else has created and put in front of us. And they spoke to the artist and were like, can we use this for the album cover? And they were like, yeah, it's cool. I assume they got paid. So that's why they said yes. Awesome. That is, yeah. that is a, I love that. Yeah. How cool would that be to be an artist and and anyone just grabbing your, yeah. your picture and taking it? That's cool. Yeah. Keep Me Around is another great track. And I know I'm only talking about the first two tracks off each albums, but they're really strong starts to albums on both of these. This is like being wrapped in a big, warm musical blanket in front of a roaring fire in the middle of summer. Go and have a listen to it. It's absolutely wonderful. Nice. Okay. I, I will. I think that's... Uh, perked me up a little bit because i was <laughs> i was just expecting we've done this before on these podcasts where we've had bands who've just drifted off and i kind of thought you were going to just say exactly the same for this so this is good i'm very happy about this yeah i mean i can't claim to have paid really close attention to all their stuff because their most recent release as sure and breaks and i'll come on to why i say that in a minute is invisible storm which i hadn't really listened mm -hmm. to but i've i've set myself a task to go and have a listen to more of that after we get done recording yeah so why did you say as in, as sure and breaks are they moonlighting as some other band so there's an album and an artist that are called lounge at the end of town Mm -hmm. Now, this is Turin Breaks collaborating with a guy called Phil Ramacon, who I didn't know really anything about. But I mentioned earlier they're a big fan of Talk Talk. They performed at an evening called Spirit of Talk Talk, which was a thing in London. And so did he. And they sort of orbited each other and nice. came across each other that way. And then things came back around later on and they decided that they should do something together. He's a bit of a legend in the industry, it turns out. He's recorded with Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff, Nana Cherry, Talk Talk, hence being there. And this album is something where they sat down at a piano, because he's a, a really amazing piano player, which is how he ended up being a kind of uh, legendary session musician. And 
sort of just started doing stuff and playing around with it and they ended up with this sound and character that wasn't really theirs and definitely isn't Sharon Breaks but it sort of sounds like jazz and soul and swing it's got New Orleans and Motown influences in there it's very different to Sharon Breaks which I assume is why they decided they couldn't release it as a Turin Breaks album because people have been like what the hell is this yeah well well, Talk Talk as a band are totally separate to Turin Breaks they're uh, in my head they're pigeonholers your kind of 80s kind of movie soundtrack well he's not part of Talk Talk no I know but just that kind of if if they met at a Talk Talk event oh um, I see what you mean it's going to be a little bit not acoustic guitars but it's not like Talk Talk either. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. completely so it's different completely to everything. <laughs> yeah, and and this is the thing is, is the what happened was they recorded the first track on that album and sort of created this character in their heads called Hopper, and the whole album is written from Hopper's perspective. Yeah, concept albums that they can be done brilliantly or absolutely awfully. Uh, you know, I've heard some concept albums which are brilliant. I think Amy Mann did well. We did Amy Mann on a podcast a while ago, and uh, yeah, she did one about a boxer. I think oh, that was quite I cool. Talking but, um, about that, yeah, but yeah, I think some some artists fly the plane into the ground with concept albums like that. But it sounds like you know some can pull it off. Yeah, it's I wouldn't say the most groundbreakingly brilliant original thing, but it's lovely. And I had it on f- a couple of times round while I was doing more research and, yeah. and I, I enjoyed it. It was nice. And I'm sure someone can tell me that it's derivative of all of these wonderful bands and I should go and listen to them. And if you, if you can and do, please do, because I'd like to listen to more of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Is that their last piece of work? Yeah. So Invisible Storm was the last Turing Breaks album and this was the most recent thing that they released. They were already recording towards the end of 2019 okay. and then they had this thing where they, they didn't want it to just end up sitting on someone's laptop somewhere and never seeing the light of day and so they started pitching it and then with the pandemic kicking in they were like oh this actually might be a really nice thing to do as part of that so it emerged from that as a kind of full full thing at that point yeah they do strike me as i mean if you've got two people who are best buddies who can just bounce ideas off each other with two guitars they could just carry on forever i mean if if, if that's the way their their creative minds work there's probably more albums well they talk about the fact that bands do have issues as they grow older as they do more things but knight says under pressure in isolation in the surreal world you find yourself in as a professional musician we still come out of it getting on really well making each other laugh and having loads of respect for each other i know it sounds corny but that's literally the reason we're still in a band together and that's the thing they obviously clearly have disagreements they've argued over things but they get on so well and that's what's held them together for such a long time awesome it's cool. What about live? Have you seen them at a festival? Well, you and I went to see them at Glastonbury, which was wonderful and lovely. I assume you remember that. Yeah, I do remember it. I can't quite picture the time. Was it a kind of afternoon set? So you and I have talked about this in the past, and I don't know whether I've mentioned it on the podcast or not, but Glastonbury, when we went, was one of two immensely hot years in about a decade it was not a muddy glastonbury yeah and we'd been there since i think the tuesday afternoon because we were doing all the charity work that got us our free tickets and on the friday 
it had been raining in the morning a little bit, just a touch. That's right. Yeah. When when the darkness opened, suddenly the the heavens opened because it went, oh shit, Glastonbury's <laughs> on, we better rain. But then yes. athlete brought the sun out early afternoon, and I don't think we bothered going back and getting sunscreen because I was very sunburnt the next day and I remember being incredibly grumpy during the polyphonic spree and not really enjoying them because they played what there must have been like 1 or 2 p.m on the main stage yeah there was about 20 of them bouncing around on stage I remember that I was laying on the grass and being very grumpy (laughs) but I assume I must have snoozed through the end of that and maybe the gap afterwards and then cheered up because I went and had a look at the the lineup and it's polyphonic spree Turin breaks and then supergrass and i was in a very good mood for Turin breaks so i assume that i must have somehow managed to get happier at that point snapped out of it yeah so i, I went and looked on set list and they opened with blue hour from ether song because i did have to look that up because i didn't remember obviously and i remember very clearly them finishing playing that night leaning into the microphone nervously and saying something along the lines of hi witcher and breaks and yeah we don't mind admitting we're shitting ourselves up here oh that's awesome yeah i I do like it when you get a band who are you know because that also brings the crowd in as well well they were they were very much a band that were relatively still new at the time they'd been around i mean this was their second album they were just launching but the optimist lp was not it wasn't like a Coldplay rise to fame or anything like that and so they're playing glastonbury on the main stage and they they're like this is incredible we're on the main stage at glastonbury this is a dream come true so of course they were incredibly nervous but i just thought it was very cute and kind of lovely to see a band be a bit uh, self-deprecating like that yeah no no rock stars that's cool yeah is that the only time you've seen them live or have you seen them at other things? Yeah, yeah, I've just, just seen them that once. So I've never seen them at a gig. No, just the one time. Okay, so I found out they are playing the Optimist LP later this year live in full. We might need to go and see that. Yeah, actually, that would be worth watching, wouldn't it? Yeah. Although the trouble is, it's a bit of a cult album. The tickets are going to be quite hard to get, but let's have a go. See if we can do it. We'll, we'll talk about it after we do after we yeah. finish recording. Yeah, and, and don't put the podcast out before the tickets go on sale, <laughs> so so that we've got the best possible chance of getting it. Our hundreds of thousands of listeners are going to go out there and get them all before we do. Yeah, come on, I'm, I'm <laughs> game face on. I want the tickets. <laughs> Fair enough. So, how about influences? Uh, have they led you down any any acoustic paths? Yeah, I had to think about this, and I don't really know. I think there may be quite a standalone band for me I, I think the problem is that they were lumped in with Coldplay and Travis and bands like that at the time which I think was unfair and I wonder whether maybe it's just that I enjoyed the acoustic-y folksy stuff that they did and it sort of led me into some of that type of stuff over the years yeah it's hard to know really they're they're sort of one of those bands that are so integral to my late teens early 20s that I don't really think of them as being like oh I found them and then I found this and then I found this it's more just I enjoyed listening to them and then I found other things that I guess were similar over the years yeah how about you they kind of emerged at the same time as Jack Johnson did actually mm-hmm. he bought his music out what 2001 as well I think I bumped into that when I was backpacking uh so yeah the two of those are tightly intertwined the kind of Jack Johnson mm-hmm. and breaks thing I love Jack Johnson. People were horrible about him at the time. They were like, oh, he's just a 
a guy with a guitar just selling records and he's a sellout and he should and he's got this surfing lifestyle but i'm a i'm a big old fan of jack johnson i think it's fantastic you're such a backpacking cliche yeah totally but he <laughs> writes brilliant music but yeah i i don't think i don't think during race made me find out new music but that one album does have a bit of a special place in my heart so uh yeah yeah that's fair cool well, bit bit more of just a one that's sentimental for the two of us. Yeah, exactly. May not have the mass appeal, but I will go and listen to some more now because I do Good. just want to find out find out a bit more if they've really started uh, producing decent music again. <laughs> I'll be interested to hear your opinions, particularly on Outbursts, because that is such a lovely record. Yeah, will do. I'll let you know. Good. Cool. Cheers, mate. Cool. Take it easy. Thanks for joining us, folks. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.